Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome to our round five recap and the 15th episode of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I am Benjamin Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. That's right. Once again, we are right next to each other. Means we'll talk over each other less. You sure about that? Means we'll have fewer scenarios where we're waiting for the other to shut up because I can just like wave my arm at him or something. We can have all sorts of funny gestures. This will be fun. We can try to distract each other, screw each other up. But really, we're probably just going to get on with this thing because it's it's late. It's 2.35 a.m. on Monday because we're a little under an hour and a half removed from the end of the Easter Monday game. And we'll get to that at the end as part of our breakdown of all nine games. There are a lot of things this round that make me just want to put out my arms in disbelief and frustration, but... If I did that, I would be asked to move 50 meters away from the microphone. And that's a perfect lead into the Thursday nighter, the last Thursday nighter until at least round 12. We don't have any more scheduled yet up to this point. Brisbane 15-8-98, defeating Collingwood 14-7-91. Really after the midpoint of the second quarter or so, this was the Lions game, and the final score does make it look a little closer than it ended up because there was a goal right at the end by Darcy Moore. Brisbane really asserted their control of the second half, and the right pieces were in the right places for them, and I can't say the same for Collingwood. Considering who Collingwood was missing, they were without Brody Majacek, they were without Jack Ginnivan, they're going to be without Jamie Elliott for a while. I didn't think they played that poorly. But as Craig McRae said after, he is not content with moral victories. I'll find the exact quote. Aha. He said, honorable losses are one thing, but if you have 22 honorable losses, you finish bottom. I think you've got to really contextualize this whole three-game window where they had two losses where they got beat by a superior team, one where they were the superior team for three quarters and then just completely fell apart down the stretch after not putting Geelong away early enough, and then... The middle game is the one that they've really got to look at. How in the world they lost to a pretty terrible Eagles team. That's the one that they're going to have to rethink and reevaluate because losing by seven or I mean, it was more of a 13, 20 point game or so for a stretch there. But losing a competitive game at the GABA is not bad, especially when you consider who they're missing. That said, there were a lot of questions about whether or not McRae's gutsy decision to have such a packed, tall forward group were the right move. Darcy Cameron was in there until he injured his ribs and was subbed out at three-quarter time. Nathan Kruger was there. Mason Cox was there. 
You could consider Jordan Roughhead. He's right around two meters, six foot seven, six foot eight. Not to mention Brody Grundy being there in the first place as well, going from the rock forward. And this was a disappointing game for Grundy. He was inefficient, didn't do well in marking contests, and he just looked uninterested defensively at times when he really should have had an easy time with Darcy Ford. It was an interesting situation where Collingwood won hitouts 39-25, but Brisbane still had a slight edge in clearances 41-38. There was a trend we saw in a couple games this round, but despite the loss, I thought Collingwood showed there in that mix of teams not to be in the top four, but to be in the eight. It's a tough road right now for them, but I still am generally satisfied with how they're playing. It's just Brisbane at the gap is a tough one. The question still remains, was that the right move to have that forward 50 so crowded with tall players? I think it definitely limited Mason Cox's abilities. First off, he's more natural in the ruck at this point, and I expected him to be more of a second ruck to Grundy. And I just feel like him being around so many other tall players between Brisbane and Collingwood really limited his ability, though he did do okay at times on Harris Andrews. Overall, though, a disappointment for him. I don't know if Brisbane is the right team to match up with by going so big when they have a lot of size themselves. I think that was the whole point for McRae to try and neutralize them. I think the better method would have been to play to your strengths because it's not like you're going to neutralize Joe Danaher. Who had another four goal outing himself. I think at this point, Danaher is one of those guys that you've got to accept is going to get a few against you. The way he's played so far this year and last year. I think most teams you match up with, you can try to do something to stop their top guys. But I think Danaher is one where you hope to limit him so that he doesn't completely dominate the match. And also you try to make sure that nobody else beats you. You kind of reverse engineer it, I guess. I've seen teams kind of do this in basketball or to make the baseball comparison. It's like facing the Angels and saying, Mike Trout's the only one that we're going to let beat us. We're going to let their best player beat us, but none of the supporting cast. And I think that's how you need to match up with Brisbane with Joe Danher. That said, Lockie Neal in his 200th game also had a really nice performance. That was the other question coaching-wise. They were really tight on him in the first quarter with Scott Pendlebury. But after that, they moved off him a bit more than really there was no tag present in the second half. And that's where he got the bulk of his action 33 disposals, four clearances, five marks, five tackles, another goal. He's more confident than ever kicking for goal now. I mean, Collingwood closed the first quarter with a 12-point lead, had played pretty well. I thought they had played him about even, realistically, not played them to the point where they deserved to necessarily be up 12. But they had all that going for them, and then they just abandoned what had worked with tagging Neal. And Lockie Neal's a guy you've got to tag. I don't get what the idea was there going away from that. And sure enough, turned around, they got outscored by 25 in the second quarter. And it just never really got that close from there. Another good game for Zach Bailey as well. He's one of the best goal-kicking midfields in the competition at this point. Although at this point, I'm almost thinking of him as another forward because of how proficient he's been. Another three-goal outing for him. 19 touches, seven marks. And at 22 and a young 22 at that, He's someone that I really think is the future for the Lions at this point. Reef McGinnis did get his first goal for Collingwood. He actually ended up scoring two, finished with 10 disposals. I liked how he played, and I can see why Nathan Kruger is already so popular among Collingwood fans. He finished with a couple of goals as well. 
he fits that Collingwood pesky kind of elbow you in the ribs mentality. And he does it in a really entertaining way where he's a fun player to watch as long as it's not against your team. So again, I still think there are positives for Collingwood to take from this. I think over the last few weeks, we've seen, okay, Patrick Lipinski probably isn't going to be as dominant as he was in these first couple games. You know, he had his 22 disposals. He was fine, but he wasn't star of the show like he had been in the early wins over St. Kilda and Adelaide. But other guys have stepped up, such as Kruger, such as McInnes. And I think ultimately just finding more of that balance is going to be key because there aren't a ton of guys to absolutely take the game over with Collingwood. But I think they're a pretty deep squad without too many glaring weaknesses. And I think one of those weaknesses got exposed when they tried to play so tall, though. They also moved Darcy Moore up, and he showed that he's still playing capable as a forward, kicking two goals himself and getting seven marks. If you want to talk game-breaking for Collingwood, it's obviously Jordan Degoe with his four goals and just how capable he is all over the forward half. Questions continue to rise about what his status is beyond this year. This is a contract year for him, and with how much money his skills are likely to be demanding, we'll see what colors he ends up in next year. I think I saw an article linking him to Essendon. Man, imagine Essendon actually getting a veteran goal kicker instead of letting him get away. And continuing with Degoe, he kicked a really nice banana goal late and then went off the ground and... John Ralph asked this question as well. Why did he not stay on the oval after it? It seems like coaches are so keen to get players off after kicking a goal, especially in open play. But at that point in the game, when you're down late, you need to have those players stay on, I think, just to keep that momentum. Unless someone's completely gassed, you need your best 18 out there. And Jordan Ngoi is absolutely part of Collingwood's best 18, no matter how you slice it. One last thing before we close the book on this game. The big talking point in terms of umpiring, something that carried on throughout the week was the return of the Arms Out 50. It is something that had been called during the Amy Community Series and was part of why Melbourne had nine 50s called against them in their game against Carlton. And then it wasn't really called rounds one through four. And then all of a sudden it came back. It was given quite often this round and at least it was consistent in the round, but why then wasn't it given rounds one through four? Why is it being given at all? It sends the message that the AFL umpires are so fragile that they can't handle even the slightest bit of criticism. They're adults. I get not wanting players to come up and get in their faces and call them a motherfucker, but come on. Is this something that the AFL Umpires Association lobbied for? I don't get it because there's no sense to this. It's not like there were problems with how players interacted with umpires overall, other than occasional Toby Green incidents and then one with Fremantle that somehow went largely unpunished this year. But this is the hill they're choosing to die on. What is the point of this? Who asked for this? You know, it's not like there was a problem that needed to be corrected. This is overcorrecting a problem that hardly existed in the first place. This is going to be something that I imagine the next CEO will address and dial back next year. And it's one of the rare rules that actually merits immediate correction. But we have to deal with it for this one. And all I'm asking for at this point is consistency one way or the other. There's nothing wrong with players asking about calls. I love since you've got the umpires mic'd up. I love hearing the dialogue between players and umpires, like a player asking why a free kick was given or why it wasn't. And 
I think that that sort of transparency is great, and we need to encourage that rather than repress it. Moving on to Good Friday, we had two stingers. If you wonder what Thanksgiving NFL games are like, especially when it comes to the Detroit Lions, the first team to do it, like North Melbourne playing Fridays, and the one that always gets the early slot, again, like North Melbourne. This is often it. Who lost by a good 68 points to the Bulldogs. North Melbourne 11-5-71, defeated by Western Bulldogs 21-13-139. Benjamin, I want to just revisit what you said when we previewed this matchup a few days ago. I really think North Melbourne can stand a chance in this one. So what the fuck happened? Well, for one, Luke Beveridge saw David Noble moving his captain to full forward and said, hey, two can play at that game. And that alone did a whole lot for the Bulldogs. Having Bottompelli up forward where he kicked three and also starting Bailey Smith at half forward, though he ended up moving back toward the middle as the game went on and was very productive there, did a whole lot to mitigate the forward list woes that we had mentioned for the Bulldogs in the last episode or two. They have so much talent in the midfield and not nearly as much of it up forward that it makes sense to play those mids who are more capable in the forward 50 in those lines. It allowed Adam Trelore to do a hell of a lot more to really play the game his way rather than kind of shoehorning into Bottompelli style, where don't get me wrong, he works into that fine, but he seemed much more comfortable in this one. And Jack McRae probably had his most prominent outing of the season yet as well. He was the most valuable player during the final series last year, but he's not someone that we had really seen as one of the focal figures in the Dogs midfield up to this point. And once he had the space to, he's shown. Whereas Melbourne overwhelms you with their ruck tandem and putting all their strengths in the same area. I mean, yes, they have strengths all over, but they really emphasize their strength in that area. It worked better for the Bulldogs to kind of parcel out their best players, which is a step in the opposite direction. But like you mentioned, it gave Trelore a chance to kind of breathe and do his thing. And it just opened up space for all of their best players to operate. I haven't even mentioned how well Aaron Naughton played, finished with five goals and three behinds. Holy shit, he finally kicked straight. About damn time. Also a five-goal game for Cody Waitman. Five goals straight on just nine touches for him. And would be a disservice to not mention just the ridiculous numbers Bailey Smith put up. 43 disposals and 646 meters gained. Seemed like a much bigger game for him from a ground game standpoint. Instead of those kind of quick dump-offs, he was able to really operate freely. wonder at this point if this is going to be something that sticks with Bontempelli playing more forward, despite what he's been able to do in the midfield over the course of his career, or whether that's something that particularly worked for this matchup and may not be as favorable against, say, Adelaide or Essendon in the next two rounds. Funny, because I think Adelaide and Essendon are both so weak defensively that this should be an opportunity for Bontempelli to continue as such. Fair enough. Maybe after those couple rounds, when the schedule gets a bit tougher again, or at least not to say that the Crows or Bombers are bad teams, but they're not good defensively. After that, maybe against a more stout defense, we'll see how Beveridge chooses to deploy Bontempelli. The pluses for North were few and far between outside of Nick Larkey's four goals. Much quieter game from Jack Zebel, 1-1 on just seven touches. And at this point, Shinboners may be ready to prepare Atu Bosanovalagi's funeral pyre after his mistake late last week and his complete ineffectiveness against Cody Waitman in the first quarter. 
I think this is the sort of thing that you'd get crucified for on a really good team. I think this is the sort of thing on a bad team where you give him time, you ask, all right, are we deploying him wrong or do we just need to let him learn within this spot? I think there's more than enough time and more than enough patience for Bosanna Bulagi. I think it's just a matter of figuring out how can we deploy him? Did we do something wrong with him positionally this game or was it just an off game? Having said that, one bad game for Jaden Stevenson got him omitted. I think that was more to send a message, though, because Stevenson woke up and has played decently well since then. And I don't know if Bosano Villagi's quite in that situation, though. The selection this coming week for David Noble will be interesting. In his 100th game, Jai Simkid did have a pretty active contest. 27 disposals for him. Definitely someone through whom North produces some of their best attacks, but didn't really see much of that this game. I was genuinely surprised at how the Bulldogs managed to right themselves and how North seemed to not retain any semblance of what worked last week going into this one. This game kind of reinforced what I thought about the Bulldogs at the start of the season and what I thought about them after even the loss to Carlton, which I think was just they kind of got hit by a team with a lot of momentum coming downhill. This is a team that's loaded throughout the roster And so long as they take care of their business up front, which they did, they're going to go a long way. It's funny because I noted before the game that Buku Kamis kicked four goals in VFL and he would be a possible solution if the kicking woes continued. And then they kicked 15-5 in the first three quarters and finished at 21-13. Nonetheless, hoping that Buku gets a shot at some point this season, if nothing else for the fact that he's a friend of Cal basketball player Kwani Kwani. Go Bears. Some injury concerns exiting this one. A little before the half, Riley Garcia left the contest. He has cartilage damage, and that's going to keep him out at least three weeks. Mitch Wallace came on again as the sub and kicked a goal, so that sub role is definitely working for Fluffball. Nice to see him contributing once again. Jack McRae did have a concussion test, and even if there wasn't anything immediate with that, as we've seen with a couple other players, symptoms are not necessarily immediately on set. And then for North Melbourne, Jack Mahoney, Mani, I forget how it's exactly said, and I don't want to butcher the accent, but Jack Mahoney Mahoney. He sat out the final 10 minutes or so with an ankle complaint, the extent of which remains to be seen. There were discussions about whether or not North Melbourne should get this Good Friday slot. You have strong opinions about it. Present those and I'll present my counterpoint. It's to the same point as the Lions of the Cowboys keeping NFL Thanksgiving. North Melbourne were the team that pioneered Friday night footy in the first place. And and as far as I can tell, similar marquee games weren't questioned when those respective teams were down. Nobody questions Richmond and Essendon for Dreamtime, and nobody did even when Richmond wasn't the sorry state they were a decade ago. Counterpoint. I saw someone suggest when the Detroit Lions lost their fifth straight Thanksgiving game, that if you lose five straight Thanksgiving games, you should be kicked off of Thanksgiving. You know, I think if you lose a marquee game like that five years in a row, I think you have to earn it back. That would be fine by me. What would merit earning it back is a whole other discussion and would just divide camps even further, but it's definitely 
a thread for conversation, but one that we'll leave there as we look at the other stinker of the Good Friday game. And I'm sort of glad I had a migraine during the first half and sort of not because even with the Eagles getting demolished as they did, I wish I had seen it live just to be as impressed with the Swans and as just appalled by the Eagles ineptitude as I was. West Coast ended up making it a lot more respectable in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter, but it ended up West Coast 9-4-58, defeated by Sydney 18-13-121. And I'm not sure if this performance merited a slimmer margin of defeat than North Melbourne at the hands of the Bulldogs. Your thoughts, Ethan? I will give the Eagles credit for sticking around and playing hard in the second half and doing what they could to defend after getting shredded early, giving up 70 points in the first half, 20 scoring kicks to two. They didn't score at all until there was 8.20 left in the second quarter, which was the longest wait for a first score since at least 1999. They didn't quit, unlike Port Adelaide a couple weeks ago against Melbourne. And wait, (laughs) and we was catching them, unlike Aguilar. Did I throw that in as a soundbite? No. <laughs> okay, but that's, that's, that's yeah, just that's, what I thought of. I know. Oh, hi. I, that, I just had to think of that. But for the first half, boy, did they suck. I've seen teams suck before, but they were the suckiest bunch of sucks that ever sucked. It was apparent from the beginning just how much the Eagles miss Jeremy McGovern because with him in, it's probably five or six fewer goals for the Swans. Not that they were completely lost in the back with Tom Barras having his share of intercepts, but it's clearly not the same without McGovern in there teaming up with Hearn. And that definitely presents some concerns going forward because neither of them are particularly young. McGovern just turned 30. In fact, he turned 30 on game day in isolation. How fun is that? And Shannon Hearn is 34. I went over these ages a couple weeks ago, and those aren't going anywhere. They're only getting older. Sydney showed easy solution. Yeah, we don't have Lance Franklin. Instead, we're just going to have 11 different guys kick goals. I liked how Ben Ronk played. I think if he's your sub when guys are healthy, that's a really good sign. It was a nice game for Hayden McLean with two goals. Logan McDonald, who I believe is from West Australia, scored twice. Played with the Perth Demons in Waffle. And why the hell was he in VFL? Also liked what I saw from Will Hayward. This was just a pretty... Dominant performance by Sydney, who were clearly the better team. I also appreciate that they had their Josh Kennedy as the injury sub so that we could keep the two Josh Kennedys straight. They didn't end up needing to bring him in at all. It was actually a pretty quiet game from Patty McCartan because it's not like the Eagles got into the forward 50 a lot. At least they were decently efficient when they had inside 50s. They just had so few of them. But this was... A really good display by Sydney to show that Isaac Heaney isn't their only option when Franklin isn't out there. And I think depending on his injury timetable, they'll probably be more content to ease him back in and can rest him a few times like they did last year to keep him fresh for down the stretch. Because I think this is clearly a team whose goal should be beyond just making the finals this year. This is a team with legitimate top four aspirations. For the Eagles, my main takeaway was... Unless Alex Witherden and Patrick Nash are carrying them through the midfield, it's really ugly. There's just not a lot there. Meanwhile, I was somewhat impressed by the West Coast Rucks. Bailey J. Williams, to differentiate with the Bailey Williams for the Bulldogs. Interesting how they have Bailey J. Williams and Josh J. Kennedy on the Eagles, come to think of it. But 
Bailey J. Williams and Hugh Dixon put up a fight against Pete Lottoms and the Rock hitouts were 33 to 26 to Sydney overall with Sam Reed also getting a few and Hayden McLean as well. But there was a clear disconnect between the Rucks and the Mids, to which you somewhat alluded by saying how inept the Mids were as a whole. Going into round six, I'm looking for Adam Simpson and his selection committee to swing a pretty big axe. They need to send a message like David Noble did. I don't know who that means would get cut, and I'm not sure if they have the guts to do that, let alone if they have the talents to be able to manage it with the continuing injury concerns. But if they can manage it, I think it would be a big wake-up call, especially when Next week's game is the most winnable you're going to get in a while, even though it is at the Adelaide Oval. It's a totally different spot than David Noble's in, though, because this is mostly an older group. So I don't know how much of a message there is to send to individuals that lack of effort won't be tolerated, especially considering I actually thought the effort was there. They just played like shit. The effort was more there from the younger group, in my opinion. And that's something that is definitely praiseworthy. It's clear that they're fighting for their time, and hopefully that will translate into fighting for bigger things going forward. Maybe the idea then should be, let's play the young guys. And I think as the season goes on, that probably should be the approach they take. Assume you've got no finals to play for. Let's see what we've got in-house. Let's evaluate this, and let's figure out where we need to add better players. So hopefully they do a good job of taking stock because it's a lot more fun when the Eagles are good. The Perth teams, just based off of time zones, end up with a lot of standalone games. So it's more fun when those games are compelling. And it's more fun when the fans at Optus are really into it because it was unfortunate to see it be so flat after the last couple of years, even with some of the restrictions put on, seeing how raucous the crowds usually get there. Thankfully, Holy Saturday's games provided more excitement than Good Fridays, at least the first couple in terms of in terms of competition, though St. Kilda did pull away from the Suns in the third quarter, but it was always kept somewhat respectable. St. Kilda 13-9-87, defeating Gold Coast 9-7-61. This was a game where Jack Sinclair really shone. 27 possessions. 524 meters gained. That's a game high. After playing in defense and kind of running along the defensive wings the past couple seasons, it's good to see him play where he belongs and succeed there. As if one Jack playing at his best wasn't enough, Jack Higgins had five goals as well. Of course, St. Kilda is much more than just the Jacks and a Max, but when they're going, it's hard to stop them. Caretaker coaches have improved to 5-0. and Congratulations, Brendan Lade. Shall we say, let's go? This game just further reinforced that we got St. Kilda wrong when we were previewing teams to start the season. I thought they had something decent up front, but I was very impressed with their midfield. I thought there were a couple of plays that really stood out. Daniel McKenzie with this great mark. It wasn't a highlight reel play, but the amount of ground he covered and the angle he took to get the intercept and prevent what would have been a surefire goal for Mabby or Chol. Chol, by the way, left the game with a left adductor injury. I don't know how serious that was. And once again, Brad Crouch continues to rack up good numbers. It was also a really positive game stat-wise for Rowan Marshall. Very necessary in Patty Ryder's absence for him to step up. 
And even though the Saints lost the Ruck battle, which is often to be expected when you're facing Jared Witts, Marshall played more than admirably in that role and got on the end of a couple other balls that he was able to work to advantage outside of those contests as well. They lost hitouts 37-27, yet won clearances 42-24. Again, common theme throughout this week. Teams losing the hitout battle, but still winning the center clearance. I think some of that comes down to the, the more following or tagging role that Matt Rowell played. He doesn't seem to be playing nearly as freely as he had been the first couple rounds. I'm not exactly sure what inspired Stewart Dew to make that decision, but it's not something that is working. As impressed as I was by the Gold Coast defense in their win over Carlton, I was unimpressed this week, other than a couple of decent plays by Sean Lemons. And that was even more of a surprise than last round, considering they had Oleg Markov in for this one for his season debut. He had 21 possessions and a whole lot of ground gained, 459 meters, but the Gold Coast defense was largely quiet. St. Kilda led this one by just six at halftime. They went on to build that lead to 16 after three and went home by 26. They put it away kind of midway through the fourth, although Tim Membry's goal in the first minute of the fourth served as a big separator because that put him up by 22. I don't think Gold Coast played that poorly. I was more impressed with St. Kilda than anything, although definitely disappointing how quiet Matt Rowell's been. And I think that does come back again, like you said, to Stuart Dew's deployment of him. You've got the chance to have a midfield trio in Miller, Rowell, and Anderson that rivals the best in the competition with Melbourne, with Carlton perhaps, even when Patrick Cripps might not be healthy. We'll talk about Carlton's midfield success later. But when you're not letting them maximize their ability, it negates any possibility of that midfield success. Max King actually didn't kick a goal in the fourth quarter in this one, which is pretty shocking. He kicked 3-2, but those three goals came within the first three quarters. Good to see him be able to get into games earlier. That was a concern that I had for him early on this season. And if he's able to continue to get involved and get on the right end of kicks earlier, it just makes the Saints even scarier. Going on now to the second of the three Saturday games, Adelaide 15-11-101, defeating Richmond 12-10-82. Shocker, Adelaide takes down an opponent regarded as being superior to them at Adelaide Oval. And Taylor Walker had another excellent game kicking for goal. And Elliot Himmelberg continued his rise this season. Has he finally arrived in a sense? Himmelberg with four goals. Josh Rochelle only ended up with two goals. And they were largely garbage time goals. But... I still really like how he played. It wasn't so much his kicking ability that stood out to me this week as it was his speed. And that combination of speed and kicking ability is going to make him a really dangerous forward for a really long time. This one, the Crows played a monster second quarter, led by as much as 25 in that quarter, went into halftime up by 19. Richmond had actually closed to 12 before Shane McAdam got his second goal. Crows went up by 25 again in the third, and then all of a sudden, Richmond took a 66-65 lead with a lightning-quick 27-1 run, but the Crows went back in front on a goal by Riley O'Brien, pulled away from there with a couple more goals by Walker and Himmelberg, and put things to bed. Unfortunately, after going up by about 22, Rory Sloan suffered an injury that turned out to be a ruptured right ACL 
he is going to be out for the remainder of the season. Rory Sloan and his sister Shay have both had rotten luck when it comes to their ACLs this year. Shay, in fact, has torn her ACLs three times during her career playing for Melbourne and AFL Women's, but just a damn shame to see one of the most respected players in the competition and someone through whom Adelaide operates a lot and through whom they had a lot of success in this game go down. I wonder now how they're going to be able to adjust in the midfield and who's going to be able to be that central player from there. I imagine it'll be a combination of Jordan Dawson and Ben Keyes who will attempt to fill that role. Ben Keyes is also all over the place. He ended up with 31 disposals and 478 meters gained. And Dawson gained 749 meters. He is a running machine all over the oval, especially through the middle. Also had a pretty efficient game with 24 disposals at 5.6 efficiency. Circling back to Taylor Walker, though, five goals to looks like he has not missed any time whatsoever. He's doing what we expect him to do. It's also not too crowded up front where it's forcing fewer opportunities for Rochelle, for Hamelberg. The chemistry we've seen out of Adelaide's forward group has been really good, and that's a group that I think they can win just about any game. They're obviously more dangerous at home, but they could go out and steal points on the road on the right day if their opponents just don't kick well enough because Adelaide's defense isn't that scary. But you're going to have to score in order to beat the Crows. It's impossible to neutralize everyone in that Crows forward group. Daniel Rioli actually did a respectable job on Rochelle in the first half. And then Rochelle had more opportunities and bigger plays in the second half. I also noted that Walker was being used in sort of a Tom Hawkins role where he was also taking some of the ruck contests in the forward 50 and was able to create some opportunities for himself and others off of that. This is the first time I've really been concerned about the fate of Richmond's dynasty if things are coming to an end. Last year, they got hit hard by injuries. Yes, they've been hit by some injuries and key absences again this year, but none of their prior losses really made me worry about their well-being moving forward. Had they lost a close game here, I would have thought differently about it, but to get pretty cleanly blown off the field outside of the first quarter and a five-minute span in the third, it makes you wonder, what's the long-term viability of this Richmond core? Their discipline was subpar for the second time in three games, and shocker, they lost both of them. Damian Hardwick highlighted that they gave up 10-5 from stoppages as well, and yes, the free kick margin was plus 20 to Adelaide, but they were also the much more aggressive side, and that kind of play earns you free kicks. This is a game still that Adelaide won, I think, more than Richmond lost. Is that fair? I'd say it was probably a 60-40 mix. I do think at this point, I think it's pretty fair to cement Adelaide in that tier. Maybe not necessarily a finals caliber team, but not that far behind. I actually just the other day kind of assembled my own sort of tier list. The top tier is S and then A, B. I'd put them in the C tier, which is also where I'd put Richmond right now, which kind of speaks volumes about how both of these clubs have trended in the last couple of years. Props to Matthew Nix for being able to build up what he's done thus far, although we'll see if this is just another mirage considering how they started last season and then trailed off. They've got a forward group that can compete with anyone, 
And at this point, they have a distinct style they play. They have an identity and they have a path to success. They're pretty one dimensional, but they're going to at least be a viable opponent. They're not pushovers at this point. And I don't think they're going to fade over the course of the season unless their forward group gets absolutely demolished by injuries because it's not just a talented group, it's a deep group. And the question becomes from here, can they build around it? And knowing how players, when they request trades, like to come home, South Australia has a smaller population. They don't quite have the talent pool to draw from, so they're going to have to compensate for that. I like where they're headed overall, though. Even if they go out and lose their next few games, and they've got a really tough stretch coming up with the Bulldogs this week, and then after hosting the Giants, they'll be playing four straight games against teams that are at minimum three and two. I still like the overall direction they're trending in, big picture. The question, as always for them, is what can they do out of state? They put up a fight against Essendon, only losing by four to them. But that was Essendon's first win, and there are a lot of questions to be asked of the Bombers. I'm waiting to be sold on Adelaide really moving forward until they can put together one or two impressive wins out of state. That said, they've shown they're not in that wooden spoon tier at this point. One thing before we continue, I group Adelaide and Essendon, because you mentioned the Bombers, in that similar category of... Pretty solid up front, but what are they going to do on defense? And that's clearly where they're going to have to add to this roster in the coming years. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin HK01. And you can find Brian Harambe, the cat, who was on Ethan's bed until a minute ago at cat named Brian on Instagram. To the Saturday nightcap we go, and this one was never particularly close. Melbourne 19-6, 120, defeating Greater Western Sydney 7-11-53. Questions to be asked all over the Oval in terms of coaching and matchups. I mentioned in the round preview that I was expecting Lockie Ash and Matt DeBoer to be pretty active, tagging a combination of Petraka and Oliver. And instead, we had no tags whatsoever. Ash ended up battling with Ed Langdon on the wings, and it was up to Josh Kelly, Callan Ward, and Tom Green to do the job against Melbourne's own midfield trio. And that did not work from the beginning. Petraka was active early and often and played probably his best game thus far this season, kicking two goals one with 30 disposals at 80% efficiency, seven marks, seven clearances, a game leading 573 meters gained. It's the kind of dominance we expected from him, although I didn't expect it against this team considering what they could have done to tag. I am wondering, does Phil Davis's absence affect how they've deployed Lockie Ash? Because it hasn't the last couple of weeks, but maybe that was something Cameron and his staff thought of for this matchup. Maybe a remote possibility. Ash was listed for this one as a center. He's done some halfback, but I think Davis and Ash play far enough away from each other that that wouldn't necessarily be a concern. And it would more affect the likes of Sam Taylor and Connor Iden. Melbourne really pulled away with a 10-goal third quarter. They outscored GWS 62-14 to in that span to pull away. 
This was also by far Max Gon's best game so far this season. It was also a four-goal performance by Bailey Fritch, three from Kazi Pickett. Gon finished with two goals to go with his 25 hitouts, 21 disposals, six tackles, and 426 meters gained. This was just a pretty clinical showing from Melbourne that they slowed up a bit in the second quarter. Overall, they looked pretty darn good. Surprisingly, despite Braden Pruce's absence, teams ended up even in hitouts, and the Giants actually won clearances, but it really had no effect. I was pretty disappointed with how they played. It looked like they gave up down the stretch, especially in that third quarter when things started to spiral out of control. The Giants are now 1-4. Yes, they've been notoriously slow starters, but it doesn't get that much easier. Their next four games are against the Saints, then they've got to go to Adelaide to face the Crows, and then they've got the Cats and Blues. We'll see just how much Toby Green affects things. In the meantime, despite his numbers being reasonable, some, including Lee Montagna, have highlighted Lockie Whitfield as being a particular disappointment, especially with not being accurate inside 50. Who knows what kind of tricks Leon Cameron may pull once Toby Green is back in next round. Maybe a position change will be a wake-up call, if nothing else, or maybe it'll turn out Whitfield's better used somewhere else at this point. I constantly go back and forth on how good of a coach I think Leon Cameron is, but truthfully, I don't think we'll have the answer to how good of a coach he is until someone else coaches the Giants and we have something to compare to. Until then, it's going to be a mystery. Looking at some other highlights for Melbourne, Along with Petraka, Clayton Oliver had another very active and productive showing with 31 disposals and six tackles. And you noted Kazi Pickett getting three goals, and he seemed much more integrated into the big picture for Melbourne than he has been in past rounds. He's been getting space a lot in his career, but it seems like his team finally saw him this round. That was also something that a few people said about Max Gone. Perhaps that is a positive reflection on Luke Jackson as well, with Jackson taking some of Gon's role in ruck contests, allowing Gon to get that space where he otherwise has been more toward the start of sequences rather than the middle or the end. Moving forward to the Sunday pair of games, Carlton hosted Port Adelaide at the MCG, ended up winning by three despite leading by 49 at the half. Pretty interesting sequence of events there. Final scoreboard read 14-10-94 to 13-13-91. I was actually at a minor league baseball game during most of this game, and the chain of texts that you sent me kind of summed this one up. You said you made the right decision in reference to me going to this baseball game instead of watching, and then an hour and three minutes later, I recant this statement. I ended up watching the fourth quarter on my phone, Gone back and watched some more since then. Still haven't quite digested it in full, but wanted to hear your analysis, and then I'll kind of sprinkle in my points wherever, because you obviously watched this one in its entirety in real time. I expected Carlton to go out as well as they did in the first half, just between the disparity between the two teams to start this season, and also Michael Voss's knowledge of Port Adelaide having been their midfield coach and a key part of their staff for the past seven years, having done so much for Robbie Gray, Travis Boak, Charlie Dixon, Ollie Wines. And despite the absence of Patrick Cripps, 
Carlton was more than proficient in the midfield. Sam Walsh took on the brunt of the responsibilities early. He had 16 disposals and three tackles in the first quarter alone. 23 disposals and gained 333 meters by halftime. He ended up with 38 at over 75% efficiency, but had much more of an impact in the first half, which is also evident by the scoring trends. Another very good game from George Hewitt with 33 disposals at over 90%, 19 contested possessions and 13 clearances from Hewitt. And Adam Chera probably had his most active game yet for Carlson with 32 disposals, four tackles, four clearances himself. Also a good game from Matthew Cottrell. Despite not scoring, he was very active on the mark, and he's not someone that you can ever forget about, even with all else that Carlton has going for them. Of course, Charlie Kernow's five goals and Harry Mackay's three buoyed their success in a large respect. I think it's pretty clear that Alir was not at full strength. He finished with just four intercepts and got beat late by Charlie Kernow on a goal that put Carlton back up by nine. I think this was a clear situation for Port Adelaide of we'd rather have him out there at less than 100% than whatever's behind door number two. And that's fully understandable considering the last few weeks. We've seen what's behind door number two, and it's not pretty. I also did like how Carlson matched up with Alir. Whenever he left Harry Mackay, that was a matchup that Mackay had largely been winning using his size to his advantage there. Jack Silvani was there to limit Alir's impact elsewhere. That put the onus on the rest of the Port back line, which by comparison is obviously lacking. I had expected more out of Tom Jonas, and a lot of people have been expecting more leadership from him, and he's definitely part of that backfield that's lagging. I had seen the halftime score and wasn't paying much attention for a while after that. I think even if I was sitting at home watching, I probably would have kind of tuned out at that point. So from there, how did Port Adelaide make this a game again? Well, they cleaned up in clearances for one. They ended up getting close to even on clearances, ended up only minus five for the game. There were plus one in stoppage clearances at the final siren. And that was after Carlton had already exceeded their average of 35 points from clearances in the first half alone. Port was also much more efficient inside their own 50. They ended up above 55% of the game, pretty much all because of their adjustments second half and actually playing their style. I don't get why it took them being down nearly 50 for them to get back to what they do best, kind of widening the field as they keep going down, getting space in the pockets and getting opportunities from there. And they also moved Connor Rosie back into the midfield where he is much more natural alongside Zach Butters. And Rosie ended up the joint leader in fantasy points with 113 alongside Ryan Burton and the aforementioned Sam Walsh. I don't think anybody would have called that given how poorly he's played thus far this season, but he's back where he belongs in the field, Rosie. He had 24 disposals at over 79%, eight marks, six tackles, and had a goal streaming through from the middle. So that was probably the best adjustment from Ken Hinckley. And I don't get why it took until now for that to change. Sam Powell Pepper also had a couple good plays off the ground. He's good for at least one wow play a game. 
at this point, and he had a couple of them that really energized Port, and Ryan Burton's pair of goals, he hadn't kicked a goal since round 16 of 2019, and in his 100th game, he gets two that do a whole lot to get Port back into things. After his second, late in the third quarter, it was a 17-point game, and whereas every Port Adelaide possession was under pressure in the first quarter, every Carlton possession was throughout pretty much all of the second half. Now, you watched the fourth quarter live, as did I, and you saw how Carlton were able to reel things back in late. Stephen Motlop and Robbie Gray failed to come up with a couple of big chances, ended up settling for behinds that ended up looming large. And ultimately, it was just too big of a margin for Port Adelaide to overcome. They would have had to play just about flawless football for the entire second half. And with those couple of chances, they couldn't quite capitalize on. In addition to Kernow playing some of his best footy, yes, O'Lear may not have been 100%, but five goals is five goals regardless of who it comes against. And when you get it against an all-Australian defender, it's quite noteworthy. That fifth goal also came from a passage that started well back with Jacob Wiedering, who who really helped Carlton move from back to front throughout the contest, even when they weren't playing their best overall. You seem pretty concerned with Carlton, despite them sitting at 4-1. and one. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that, because we talked last night about it. Their third quarter difficulties partially speak for themselves. They have been outscored by 104 points through five rounds this season, in third quarters alone, 7-11-53 to 24-13-157. And that can be a sign of multiple things. It can be a sign of teams figuring them out as the game has gone on. It can be a sign of fatigue starting to settle in. I'm wondering if there is a potential conditioning concern. And also if it's not Michael Voss's coaching that has propelled Carlton to success, but rather the raw talent and Raw talent can take you a reasonable distance, but that talent has to be cultivated and curated in some way to get meaningful results that translate to flags. I thought the first couple weeks, Carlton's coaching was good. And on top of that, I thought that their conditioning had actually been pretty solid because they ended up pulling away from both the Tigers and Bulldogs in the fourth quarter. So I don't know at this point. The second half adjustments, you know, we're five weeks into the season Teams know what they're getting from Carlton, so it's confusing. I think there's still some questions to be asked about them. I put them in that B tier of teams where I would kind of group them right now with Collingwood, Fremantle, St. Kilda, and the Bulldogs, kind of in that fifth through ninth class overall. But there are a lot of questions that I think will be answered in the coming weeks as to will teams now that they've had a real chance to see who the Blues are and what they're about match up with them properly out of the gate? Is Carlton's conditioning a concern? What is it that's causing these third quarter swoons and how can they avoid them moving ahead? And also another thing I noticed at the end of the game, you know, you get a close win, you're singing your song, you'd expect things to be somewhat animated after any sort of victory, particularly one where you managed to hold on but they just looked dead and almost defeated in victory. It's not a Pyrrhic thing. They're 4-1. and one. 
And it's not like they suffered any devastating injuries, to our knowledge. In fact, the return of Mark Pittnett from injury was extremely valuable, especially matched up against a debutante, Ruckman, and Sam Hayes. They ended up winning hitouts 38 to 24 and center clearances 17 to 11. But I would just expect morale to be better after that. I get why it wasn't. They could have and probably should have won by more, but. A win is a win, and when you're starting as well as you are, you ought to be proud of that. And I'm not sure if anyone else noted their lack of enthusiasm, but to me, it's not the greatest side. It could also be we expected to win, and now we're here, so this isn't a big deal. Maybe we're overanalyzing this. Meanwhile, for Port, you said, well, they got into too big a hole, and regardless of what adjustments were made, they are 0-5, and Ken Hankley at this point has to be on the cusp of losing his head. Carl Amon finished with 10 tackles, but only 15 disposals seems quite low. And he had a chance to kick a winning goal. It was beyond his ability, and I think he sensed that, but he decided to go for it, ended up short, was rushed through for behind, and after a Harry Mackay mark from the kick-in, that was that. I thought his best bet there would have been to look for something shorter rather than that big pack mark right in front of the goal square. That's a mistake we've seen from a few guys in these late-game situations where they know that the set shot would be a bit out of their range. I think instead of settling for the pack mark, a lot of times there's a better option in mid-range, even if it's not a surefire goal. As Brian just said, he obviously agrees with me. That's what that meow meant. I think you're more likely to get a good shot out of it, whereas out of the pack mark, you need a lot of things to go right. You need someone really big and strong to come through, or you need a ball to bounce properly, and I don't like teams putting their stock in that. I've been pretty critical of Ken Hinckley's coaching throughout this season, and while they did make necessary adjustments in the second half, that was the second half. Why did it take them so long? It's not like Carlton threw anything unexpected at them. They should have been more prepared for this. They looked like this was the sort of thing you'd expect in round one, where Carlton threw something completely different at them. No, Carlton didn't throw anything new at them. They did what they've been doing. They used their same recipe, and Port Adelaide looked unprepared for it until the second half. They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. The latter of the Easter Sunday games had really the opposite going on for its victor because whereas Carlton faded in the third quarter, Fremantle ran away with it. They ended up defeating Essendon by 48 points. Essendon 8-11-59 defeated by Fremantle 16-11-107, which is a remarkable reversal of the Dockers' recent fortunes playing at Essendon. It was interesting. So many times in the last couple of years, talking about what could Fremantle have done had they kicked efficiently. This time, the Dockers went into the half with the lead because Essendon hadn't kicked efficiently. Fremantle went into half up by three because the Bombers had only kicked 5-8. And then Dockers pulled away. They kicked six goals in the third, another four in the fourth, turning what had been a really fun back-and-forth game for the first half into a pretty lopsided affair down the stretch. And one where, really, it looked like Essendon had given up. It was disheartening. By the time Matt Tavener was kicking his fifth or sixth goal, he ended up getting a career-high seven. 
and that was without a behind and on just 11 touches. But by the time Fremantle were taking control, Essendon looked like they had already packed up. Another two goals for Michael Frederick. Zero gritties, though. Sam Switkowski scored two. Bailey Banfield with a couple of goals. Better game for him. The one who continues to impress me, even though the stats don't necessarily reflect it this time around, was Nathan O'Driscoll, who ended up gaining 480 meters, showed off a lot of speed, finished with 22 disposals, no scores, nothing that jumped off the page, but I just really liked the way he played and the way the game flows once he touches the ball. Was very glad that Justin Longmuir kept him in, and at this point, he's cemented his place in the 22. It's a list crunch for Fremantle with what they had coming back in terms of injuries, but it's clear that the right decision was made. He looks like a 22 under 22 player for sure. Remember, he's only 19 years old. The question I had for Fremantle entering this game was, would they kind of try to play a speed-based game or just keep the pressure on throughout? And they kept the pressure on. And considering how weak Essendon's defense is, I think you actually could have gone either way with it because if you play a speed-based game, you're kind of running at their defenders, but you got to get through the mids first to get there. Whereas this pressure-based game, there were a lot of times in the second half where they did not let the Bombers out of their back 50. And they ended up really thriving in that sense. I think this is the beginning of Fremantle really establishing their identity. Although I think that kind of speed-based style can be deployed in the right matchups. I think overall, the pressure game is what's going to generate success for them. It's kind of up-tempo, don't let teams out of their back 50 style that we saw generate so much success in the second half. I think it's going to be what they're going to rely on moving forward and getting quality results out. David Mundy was the starting point for a lot of that pressure all across the ground, despite only getting 20 touches and behind himself. Very clear that he was helping Andrew Brayshaw direct some of the traffic and Brayshaw with another excellent game. 34 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and still working at more than two-thirds efficiency. He, at this point, is probably a top 10 player in the competition through the first five rounds. Was also very impressed with what Sean Darcy was able to do all over the forward half. 23 hitouts and eight clearances. Fremantle lost hitouts, which was a bit surprising, especially once Andrew Phillips went down in the middle of the first quarter, but there were plus 12 in clearances. Darcy was a big part of that, and he was unafraid to go forward with the ball in hand either and ended up kicking two goals too. I always love seeing Rux being able to move forward and to move forward and kick goals themselves. And that isn't something that I'd seen Darcy being so willing to do in the past. And hopefully that continues because that's just another weapon that Fremantle's opponents would have to worry about if so. And along with Darcy Rayshaw, despite not getting huge ranking numbers, Will Brody had another monstrous game out of the center with nine clearances as part of his 26 disposals at over 88% efficiency. He is looking like the steel of steels in this past offseason's trade window. And is yet another ex-Gold Coast son that is succeeding elsewhere. Two positives for Essendon. Dyson Heppel, we had criticized him a lot. You had especially. He ended up with 34 disposals. He's settling in nicely. And we all got to see Brandon Zerk Thatcher's ass because not only did his shorts get pulled down, his underwear got pulled down too. That is a disgusting act. I'll say that another positive was Sam Draper ending up getting 30 hitouts and contributing to Essendon 
winning that overall, even though they weren't able to make good on that overall. Peter Wright having to move into second ruck definitely limited some of his impact as well. I'd also say Ben Hodge not being dead is a positive because the photo Essendon posted when they were announcing him in the lineup was this black and white photo that looked like they were announcing that he died. And he's not dead. Didn't play all that well, but alive, functioning. This round wrapped up just a couple hours ago with the Easter Monday clash between Hawthorne and Geelong. Hawks pulling off, I'd say, a pretty significant upset there, holding the Cats goalless in the fourth quarter. Final score, Hawthorne, 14-8-92 to Geelong, 11-14-80. Hawks led by 23 after a quarter, went down by 12, ended up winning by 12. And in this game, we found out Geelong's biggest problem. You know, if you ask someone at the start of the year, what's the biggest issue with Geelong? They'd probably say age or they can't beat the Demons or they can't beat the Swans or they can't beat the Lions outside of Cardinia Park. No, Geelong's biggest obstacle is water falling from the sky. Which is weird because they've done okay for themselves in precipitous conditions in the past few years, but it just seemed like they hadn't prepared for it thus far this season. It looked awful, whether it was unable to kick straight. There were a couple of easy goals that they ended up whipping on settling for behinds. Obviously, if they're kicking 11-14, that's happening. There were times when they just couldn't secure handballs. Unfortunately, it was definitely a weaker game for Brian Myers. The only player who really impressed me from the cap standpoint was Max Holmes, even though the numbers didn't jump off the page. He was really flying around on the wing and making himself involved in plays. And when the Cats were playing well, he was a big part of that. I'd say until the final three or so minutes, Tom Stewart had had another very solid game as well and was proving his all-Australian worth. But he had a play with about six minutes left that ended up proving costly, where he, instead of taking a mark right around the goal square, decided to punch him all away. It led to Luke Bruce scoring off a snap, and that put Hawthorne up seven. Similar thing happened in round two against Sydney when Jake Colajasny decided to punch a ball instead of take a mark, and that led to a goal. And it's just little decision-making things like that that are going to come back to haunt you in a close game. And credit to Hawthorne for improving to the point where this was going to be a close game, Easter Monday rivalry or not. They came out on fire, had 20 disposals and three goals before the Cats even had a single disposal. They really overwhelmed Geelong with their speed early. Second time in three games, the Cats have played a lousy first quarter, which was a really, really concerning trend last year. And unlike the prior game that happened this season, they weren't bailed out by poor kicking by the opposition like they were against Collingwood. I thought Jai Newcomb played really well for Hawthorne. He finished with 31 disposals, seven marks, and 653 meters gained. Played an excellent first quarter. James Sicily had a really quality game as well with 15 marks, including seven intercepts. And they showed that Jaff maybe isn't necessarily the only one that has to play well defensively. Jaff still made his impact on the game. He's still fun to watch the way he flies around, but Sicily was the one who was really out there to help limit Jeremy Cameron. And then Sam Frost also got in on that as well. It was usually Frost, Sicily, and then they would bring in a third defender, kind of create a three-on-two matchup against Cameron and Hawkins. And it worked pretty well. And my biggest takeaway from this game is much more that Hawthorne won it than that Geelong lost it, although the Cats certainly had their share of plays to lose it. 
I thought Sam Mitchell coached another really good game. I was impressed with how Hawthorne was able to counteract the loss of yet another ruck in Ned Reeves. He went down with a shoulder injury early, ended up putting Connor Nash and Jacob Kaczynski in ruck duty, and that went heavily against them. 47-26 to hitouts for Geelong. But they kept the clearances close, and that's a sign of good positioning, as well as perhaps a bit of a letdown in that regard from Geelong. Hawthorne did a good job compensating when they knew they weren't going to win hitouts. In fact, they led hitouts very early, something like 5-1, to one, which makes the 47-26 margin there even more staggering. Reeves ended up with 10, actually, before he went down. I will say, hitouts weren't the only way Mark Blitzov's stepped up. I thought he had a really solid game. It was really him and Holmes were the best performers for Geelong. And considering that I had seen Blitzovs as a liability last season, I'd said that he and Stanley needed to be better this season. Both of them have been. So there's definitely positives, but this is a frustrating one where the Cats had the lead. They were up by 12, up by 11, multiple occasions, had chances to pull away and settle for behind, such as 14 in the third, Instead, they led 61-52, and Gunston and Lewis scored right away at the other end to put the Hawks back ahead. Considering Gunston's invisibility last round, that was huge for him to get on the end of that one. And then, with a 10-point lead, Cats had this great end-to-end sequence where Mark O'Connor basically ran the entire ground, but then he ended up hitting the post. They led by just 11 at that point, didn't get another goal, Ended up falling behind on a Sicily behind where a shot hit the post with 9.38 to go. It was actually a really terrible free kick from Sicily where I thought the Cats were going to take advantage and settle back in. Instead, the mistake by Stewart sets up the Bruce snap. And then Mitch Lewis ended up finishing it off. The other thing that stood out to me from Hawthorne was that first off, their tackling was a lot better. Jarman MB was a huge part of that. And second... Geelong didn't try as much to start runs from the back like they did on that end-to-end sequence where O'Connor unfortunately hit the post. Instead, they tried playing Brad Close pretty far forward, which made no sense considering how poorly the Hawks defended the counterattack against St. Kilda, and it left Geelong constantly under pressure in their own 50, and that early Hawthorne surge that got him out to that 23-point lead had a lot to do with the Cats not being able to fend off pressure in their own 50. So... They better learn from that and let Brad Close start back and then kind of use his explosive play to get through because this this did not work. Credit also to James Warple, who was omitted from the main 22 and stepped up as the sub, was part of that better tackling effort for Hawthorne with five of his own. He and Gunston both had five. Dylan Moore led the way for Hawthorne with six tackles, as well as, you know, four goals, including three pretty early on that helped set the tone. Ultimately, from my Cats fan perspective, I'm just disappointed that they're not going to get a second crack at Hawthorne because I feel like this is a team that they should beat more often than not. I would say seven to eight times out of ten. And by X score, in fact, the expected score did have DeLong on top in a very close game. Hawks were kicking extraordinarily well to start the game. And then, like we said, Cats couldn't handle water falling from the sky. I think that impacted not just some of the handballs, but their inability to finish some relatively standard free kicks that they usually take care of. This is one that slipped away from them, but not one where they have to really reinvent the wheel, at least. 
they simply have to get back to what they're good at and also understand that moisture exists. It was a pretty quiet game from Cam Guthrie. Finished with just 20 disposals and missed some time getting patched up. He took a couple blows. Jack Henry ended up getting subbed out for Jake Kolajashny. Follow that moving forward. Wonder if maybe Guthrie ends up missing the game this coming week against North Melbourne. I will say this definitely lowers my concerns of the Cats losing to North because I can't see them losing two in a row. I mean, knock on wood. I was worried after North had played so poorly that they were going to come back and play a really good game next week. But I'm much more optimistic about the Cats' chances of beating North Melbourne now, if that makes any sense. It's completely counterintuitive, and yet it's also completely intuitive at the same time. Although I'm not going to say what I expect of North Melbourne, because we know how well that worked this past round. One other little detail I did like from Geelong was seeing Mitch Duncan with some of his sort of mid-range kicks to open men. He really started to utilize the field well and seems to be settling in. The numbers reflect well on him in terms of things like meters gained, but I didn't think it was a great game from Isaac Smith, especially early. He was one of the guys who was getting pressured in that back 50 a lot. But Hawthorne, like we've said, they're a good team that can steal some points, and they definitely did in this case. And Jai Newcomb is a 22 under 22 player for sure. He's only 20 years old, and he's going to be really solid for a long time. I liked what he showed, and I look forward to watching the Hawks more against, well, and the other team, because they're actually a pretty fun watch. They've got the Swans this coming week in Tasmania. Then they take on the D's at the MCG, followed by Essendon, Richmond, and Brisbane. So it is a pretty grueling stretch of schedule. Hats off to Hawthorne for winning one heading into this gauntlet. And I hope they represent themselves well against good competition moving forward to make me feel better about Geelong. All right, real quick, because of when Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week came out, we had to record this little segment remotely. I don't know if you guys would notice, but Benjamin, the music major, would certainly throw a shit fit about it, and I'm sure he will while he edits this. So just wanted to explain why, if the sound is slightly different for this brief segment, you know why. We recorded in person Sunday night, early Monday morning. It's now... Early Tuesday morning, we have our Mark and Gold of the Week nominees, so let's get into them. I'd say the Mark of the Week nominees are definitely flashier this week than the Goal nominees. Firstly, we've got Caleb Achi in the Thursday Nighter for the Lions over Isaac Quainer. A good knee push-off, somewhat high up, looked like it might have gotten into his neck. Good elevation. Then Bobby Hill over Stephen May and in front of Max Gaughan, one of the few highlights for Greater Western Sydney. I had said leading up to that game that Bobby Hill would probably have to take a screamer for them to stand a chance. And they still didn't stand a chance after that, but nice moment. And then finally, Aaron Naughton for the Bulldogs against Ben McKay. That was another example of a good push off. Not as much elevation, but got the space he needed. What do you think of these? Which one would you pick? I'm going to go with Kalamachi. It's a tough call between Achi and Hill. You know, I like Hill kind of being sandwiched between two guys, but I think Achi was the best, especially when you consider what a good defender Quainer is and how many intercept marks he racked up against Geelong a couple weeks ago. I thought this, this was the best of the three. I thought all three were good. I thought Achi's was the best. I agree on Achi between the elevation and the play of Isaac Quainer. How about goal of the week? Goal of the week, none of them really stood out to me. What I was pulling up the page was like there was no particular goal that I could really think of that stood out this week. But 
first he had James Bell for Sydney, his four bouncer soccer style out of the air off of a tap from Luke Foley. Then you had Zach Fisher from the left pocket on the boundary running at full speed. And then you had Kaiseah Pickett running more than half the oval. Connor Iden had spoiled Bailey Fritch, but Pickett picked up the crumb and kicked a goal while at full sprint from about 45 meters out. Benjamin, which one do you see as the best of these? I have a tough time between Fisher and Pickett on this one. I don't think either of them or Bell, if he somehow wins it, would stand a chance on Brownlow Knight. Had Pickett been able to get the connection on the mark, I would surely give it to him for going on the overlap of the give and go there. I think I'm still going to give it to him just because I respect the feat of being able to do what he did at full speed after running as far as he did, but I'm not completely sold. I'm actually going with Bell. I didn't think any of the three really stood out to me that much. So I'm going Bell because I thought soccer style, getting the luck of it to bounce four times and stay on target. But again, none of these are going to hold up at the end of the year when we're talking goal of the year nominees. I mean, I'd just be inclined to say Shea Bolton again for this round without even watching because he probably did something that we're forgetting. But I decided to not go with Bell just because of the skill versus luck factor. And I feel like there was a lot more luck involved in Bell's as opposed to Fisher's and Pickett's. There were multiple goals in the Richmond-Adelaide game that were probably more deserving of nomination than the three here. But oh well, not like I'm going to lose any sleep over it. Overall, I'd say that this round solidified a lot of things that we have come to expect of the nine teams that won. Perhaps less so for the losing teams, but at this point, we're starting to understand each team's styles a lot more, and we'll be able to have probably some more realistic expectations going into the subsequent rounds. I mentioned this earlier and I'm going to say it again, this round kind of reinforced what I thought about a lot of teams after round two in terms of strength, in terms of style. I'd say the only real difference would be having a more and more positive perception of St. Kilda because I felt like looking back at round two, I thought Fremantle had lost the game more than St. Kilda had won it. Since then, the Saints have rattled off three more wins and have looked really good in the process So far this year, I think you can make a compelling argument for a finals berth for 15 out of 18 teams. I think there's still a clear top nine battling for those eight spots, but there are 15 teams that could find themselves in the conversation, even if a couple of those like Adelaide and Gold Coast would need a lot of things to fall into place. I'll add Essendon and Greater Western Sydney into that group as well. I think there's a clear middle third that's emerging in the competition and that Those four teams that we just mentioned are a little below that. But as much as we like to think we know a lot at this point, this is just round five. And there are a lot of compelling matchups and Zach Brown that will tell us a lot more about where each team stands. We're going to get into this in a lot more detail in our next episode, by which point we will be back on opposite sides of the bay. But I'm particularly looking at the Friday nighter out in Canberra for Toby Green's return when the Giants host St. Kilda, as well as the Adam Chera revenge tour when Fremantle hosts Carlton in perhaps the most compelling game thus far this season based on the storylines contained within these first five rounds. We will have thoughts on those games as well as the rest of the round and league affairs on our Twitter at Americans Footy. 
I may also add in some comments, especially pertaining to the West Coast Eagles, at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. You can find me at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A, and you can find my son, Brian Harambe, on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. Well, Ethan, have fun going to even more baseball and hopefully staying awake long enough to watch the footy. Well, that shouldn't be an issue. I had very little trouble doing it this round. I did sleep through some of the second half of Melbourne GWS, but that was more because that game was shitty. And I'll see how I can manage my sleep through the final four weeks of my undergraduate career. Hopefully y'all's circadian rhythm is better than both of ours, because if it's not, oh boy. We'll talk to y'all again soon.